welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. podcast that you're about to listen to is recorded prior to the current COVID-19 pandemic. I've held it back for the past three weeks, but I feel that now we're ready to find a balance between dealing with our current reality and looking forward to a bright future. This episode with colorist Nicola Clark will inspire you to a brighter future. So let's get straight into it. For many young hairdressers, the opportunity to work one-to-one with some of the world's top models, musicians, actors, and celebrities is their dream job and definition of success. But obviously, it's a definition of success that only a few can achieve and even less can maintain. It takes more than just the technical and creative skills. You have to be a certain type of person to be able to deal with celebrity clients because it can be demanding, unpredictable, and stressful to the extreme. But the upside is it can also be pretty cool as well. My guest on today's podcast is Nicola Clark, who is salon partner and the creative color director at John Frieda Salons in London, as well as being a major celebrity colorist. Nicola has a client list that includes the likes of Kate Moss, Madonna, Kate Winslet, Kate Blanchett, Kerry Mulligan, Margot Robbie, Sienna Miller, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jake Gyllenhaal, Brad Pitt, Claudia Schiffer, Tilda Swinton, Gwyneth Paltrow, Dua Lipa. I'm sure you're getting the idea. Quite simply, Nicola is the colorist behind some of the world's most photographed faces, as well as being called upon to create characters in the world of film. Nicola runs the gauntlet from film locations and magazine shoots to the red carpet, but is always back to the salon, which she describes as the best part of the job. So if you're expecting some prima donna princess, you're going to be disappointed because Nicola is also one of the most down-to-earth, loyal, and normal person that you will ever meet. And I suggest that that is one of her secret weapons. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Nicola Clark. Thank you, Anthony Whitaker. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hell of an intro, Nicola. If I didn't know you, I'd be expecting a diva on the end of this recording as well. So thank you so much for uh, giving us some of your time today to share your story with the audience. Um, So uh, where do we start? Let's let's jump in and I will, uh, you know, pass the floor to you to give us uh, some of your background. How did you get into this industry? And, you know, just sort of give us a a quick overview of um, your journey to how you've got to where you are today. And then we'll go back and I'm going to dig into some of the detail a bit more and, uh, you know, ask some more direct questions. So over to you, Nicola Clark. Okay, where do I start? Well, um, I think from a very early age, I always knew... I didn't want to be in an office or um, I knew that I wanted to work in a creative um, outlet and it was quite difficult to get into makeup and I thought I was ready to start working when I was probably about 13, which may for some of the audience be a bit young, but here in the UK, we're allowed to do Saturday jobs, which means that you can work on a Saturday for a small company like salons and beauty um, beauty departments. So 
I decided to march myself off down to the local high street and went and asked or badgered actually because I was probably about 12 and a half and I badgered our local hair salon and they um, told me to come back when I was 13 and it all started from there really. So I started working on a, on a, on a Friday evening after school and a Saturday and that was it really. I just went from there. Okay, so when did you start full-time in a salon situation? Okay, so what I did was I, one of my, one of my mum's best friends was a hairdresser and she had worked at Vidal Sassoon and was freelancing. She gave my mum a list of hair salons to work and I knew that I wanted to work in London because at the time I lived with my parents in Essex, which is a small, well, it's quite a big county outside London just an hour away out of London and I knew from the start that I didn't want to work anywhere near where I'd grown up I knew that I wanted to work in London plus my heritage from my family they were all Londoners so she gave me a list of salons to go to and around about the age of 14 I marched my mum up to London and made her sit outside all the salons that I wanted to hand in my application and not realizing how hairdressing salons snap up assistants whenever they come in um they all kind of gave me jobs there and then on the spot but I still had a year to go at school so I sort of prepared myself to make sure as soon as I'd left school that I had a, a job immediately because I don't know like I suppose my parents scared me into thinking that you know, I couldn't hang around and wait for it, for it just to come to me. So um, I went into, funny enough, the salon, um, Lidl Sassoon salon was closed on in Knightsbridge for refurbishment. And that was where one of the main places that I wanted to go. And opposite, just a bit further down by Hyde Park Corner was a, was a really famous hotel called the Barclay Hotel. And we went in there, there was a hair salon and it did hair and beauty. And my then to be boss, his name was his name was Robert Wright, and he owned the um, the salon part of the Barclay Hotel, which was called Robert at the Barclay. And he made me bring my mum up to meet him after we had our, our interview. And my mum was like, just fell in love with him, and she was like, "You need to go there. He's amazing. He's going to teach you how to do beauty and hair." So I worked there in the summer while um when I was 14 and then I went back like two days he asked me when when would you finish in school and I told him I was finishing on the 18th and on the 22nd I was working when I was 15 so soon to be 16 okay I did all my exams and everything and then went straight into work Right. So I'm imagining then that it's it's like, you know, head down learning the trade and mm. you're doing that for three, four, five years, whatever it is. And yeah. then you and then at some point there's this transition to I don't want to just be a salon stylist slash colorist. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a second. But at, at, at what point did that did, well, at, at what point did the transition happen to you realizing that there was this world called session hairdressing, editorial hairdressing, and that you thought, I want a piece of that? Well, I think um, 
I, I was always really interested in photography and makeup and all those other things that sort of spread out from hairdressing. And working at the Barclay Hotel, I worked there for four years and I was subjected to quite interesting clients. Like we used to have, you know, Kurt Douglas and his wife and um, one, of, one of the first people that I worked with was Faye Ray, who was the first um, starlet in uh, King Kong and Elaine Stritch used to come in and have her hair done. So I'd already been sort of exposed to quite creative and a lot of famous people in the first part of my career. And I obviously working in the salon, you know, a lot of the, then our Bible would have been like the magazines like Vogue and all the models at the time were Linda Evangelista and it was kind of really exciting and we didn't have the internet and we didn't have our phones and we wasn't looking at Instagram. So our outlet was Vogue and all the magazines. Mm. So that interested me straight away. So I just looked at all the credits and I noticed a lot of the stuff that I liked, like Vivian Westwood and all those kind of things. And the person that was doing the hair for Vivian Westwood was Sam McKnight. So that was always in the back of my mind that that was definitely someone that I wanted to meet. Um, and then I left the Barclay after I finished my training and I had a really great relationship with my boss, Robert, who helped me get a pension and made me do all the kind of grown up things that I suppose parents help with as well. So he kind of gave me a really good stead and in, you know, you've got to get a mortgage and do all these kind of grown up things. And after learning all those kind of things and I learned quite old-fashioned hairdressing. I learned how to set hair and blow dry with a round brush, which a lot of um, the people that I then went on to work with didn't do because I worked with a lot of people that all came from Vidal Sassoon. And at the time, you know, the, the Sassoon rules were quite strict in the way that they dressed hair and dealt with hair. So I went and worked at this place called Hyper Hyper, which was a super, super franchise of different creative outlets lots of different um like i suppose ghost was there body shot uh, the body map um we had hot hair wigs so it was this really kind of creative outlet so i then started meeting other people in the hair industry i started working with this hairdresser called nigel barnes who was a session hairdresser, but he did a lot of commercial work with VO5. He did a lot of the hair commercials. And just by chance, we were, he was doing Jennifer Saunders and Joanna Lumley from a TV series here called uh, Absolutely Fabulous. And they were opening London Fashion Week. And we arrived to do Joanna and... Um, Jennifer Saunders and Sam McKnight was there to do Naomi Campbell. And it just happened that he was there on my, you know, I just turned around and he turned up with his flight cases. He was really sort of like they rushed in him and Naomi really swishy and deverish and quite fabulous. And for some reason, I don't know, he'd, he'd forgotten something out of his kit and I just was like, on it straight away I was like I've got that in my kit do you want me to help you and I just um, made myself really available to help him and just said to him you know if you need an assistant down the line let me know and he was like yeah yeah fine um, speak to my agent and so I just found out his agent and 
I just rang them every week and pestered them to see if they needed Sam, if Sam needed any help. And so it was you just, just you just persevered and drove them mad until one day they thought we've got to give this girl <laughs> we've got to give this girl a break. Yeah, Sam so, needs an assistant for God's sake, yeah. get it. So Sam um, was really busy at the time and spending a lot of his time between New York and London. Mm. And I was still working in the salon, so it kind of suited me that he was away for a fair amount of the time. When he came back to London, especially over Fashion Week, I just made sure that I took my holidays when Fashion Week was on in London. So we have um, four weeks holiday and... I would take two weeks in February and two weeks in September and hope that, um, you know, they would let me work on the show. So I just, I just used to ring his agent every week and say, hi, it's Nicola. How are you doing? What are you up to? How's Sam doing? Is he in London? Have you got any shows this week? Do you need any help? And they would be like, well, he's got like so many and he's like busy and this, there's maybe one person free to, to come in on this show and I'd be like, well, you know, I've got a car so I can drive people if people need to be driven to between shows and stuff. And it just went on like that, really. And then eventually, I think Sam kind of took notice of me. And I think he was a bit he was a bit wary about having me as an assistant because he in the in the past, I think he'd had a lot of guys. And at the time we didn't have wheelie baskets. Like we didn't have like wheelie suitcases. Everything was in like these metal flight cases. So they were really bulky and heavy. Mm. And I think he was just a bit anxious about turning up with five foot two <laughs> girl from Essex <laughs> struggling with all these boxes. And I was like, no, it's fine. I go kickboxing. I like work out. It's really fine. I'm like really strong yeah. so I can do it. And I just convinced him and just hassled him and, he finally gave in and I spent a lot of my time working in the salon and then the time that I had off or any time I could get off from the salon, I'd work with Sam. Yeah. So uh, be before this time, had you already decided that you were going to specialise as a colourist? When you say you were working in the salon, were you working in the salon as a colourist or were you working in the salon as, a, as an all-round hairdresser that would cut colour, style, whatever? No. So when I finished, I... My training was all-rounded and I did really enjoy colouring hair. I quite enjoyed foil placement and I liked the, um, at the time as well, I liked the fact that you could change hair and you could change it back if you had to. So way back when I've trained we didn't we didn't really have so like so many tools as extensions and so many tools to change things so when people were having their haircut and then we, people really did have haircuts you know like wasn't people had less hair color more hair cutting I think in the late 80s early 90s it was all about the haircut so I quite enjoyed the extra training to learn about once you kind of like learn placement and how to put the foils in and timing. I then quite, I got quite into learning the formulas and how things change stuff. I quite like that aspect of things. And also if you'd put too many highlights in, you could take them out or if you'd made someone too dark, you could lighten it. Whereas if you cut someone's hair off, 
like you know people used to freak out if you cut an inch off too short that was it it was well I'll see you in a couple of months time then so I kind of enjoyed the fact that the change was quite exciting and as well there were less people doing colour at the time right okay and and so uh, you know, t- tell me about this transition then from working, you know, I-, I know you love working in the salon and I think that's great because there's so many young hairdressers that, you know, that, that they sort of see working in the salon as being a stepping stone. And I love the fact that you, you know, sort of refer to as you love being back in the salon, that that's your favorite place to be, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, how do you know you you've got this this long list of celebrity clientele etc how did you sort of go from you know being the assistant to sam mcknight you know occasionally when he was around for fashion week to all of a sudden starting to really develop as a session stylist um and what was that transition like to then being a colorist for these um you know type of clientele well in the salon once I finished the Barclay Hotel for four, four years, I went and worked um, in, a, in a salon called Andrew Joe's. And I worked there with a lot of fantastic creative people. I mean, it was probably one of the most diverse salons that I've worked with. There were people from every part of the country and all over Europe. So that was one of the kind of fantastic things about working there. Um, and I special and I decided then that I wanted to specialise in colour. So I was just kind of um, learning on the job, really, and teaching between the people that were coming in and working in the salon and myself how to improve. But I still had the hairdressing skills that I'd learned at the Barclay. So I would go out on shoots with the other members of staff because I could dress hair, I could set hair, I could use the tongs I could use a straightening iron I knew how to use a round brush so I was a good asset to the company in that way and I still loved coloring hair and I found as well with working with Sam it was really easy for Sam because Sam obviously can't do every job that comes his way so some I mean the first I think the first time where Sam we were working at London Fashion Week and it was Matthew Williamson's first show and it was really exciting because there were a lot of um, supermodels like Helene Christensen, Jade Jagger was there, Kate Moss, Naomi was there. It was, it was a really fun and exciting show to be on and Kate had turned up, Kate Moss had turned up and she'd had this big blonde streak put through the front of her hair. And at the time, Sam was just like, what have you done to your hair? And she was like, I know, I hate it. It's really ugly. And he was like, you look like a Spice Girl. You need to get rid of that immediately. <laughs> so he was just like, not even looking at me. He was like, Nicola can go around and sort it out for you. Why don't you just go after the show and do it? So that was my first meeting with Kate. I was already doing Jennifer Saunders um, in the salon and it just kind of built up from that. And I think one, I think Kathy Phillips, who was at the time the beauty editor of Vogue magazine, was really friendly with Sam. And they thought it was hysterical that I, my name was Nicola Clark. And, and of course, we have a really famous hairdresser called Nikki Clark. So they thought it was hysterical that Sam McKnight had Nikki Clark as his assistant. So they thought that was quite funny. So they, she did a little 
piece in Vogue about the fact that I was Sam's new assistant and my name was Nikki Clark and they thought it was really funny. Um, and then I think, well, I was always under the impression, Gwyneth had always given me the impression that Kate had, um, Kate had recommended me to her. So I got this phone call one day and it was Kay Giorgio who was at the time Gwyneth Paltrow's hairdresser and she had said that they'd had a disaster. Someone had messed up Gwyneth's hair and they were in the middle of shooting Shakespeare in Love and would I come down on set to sort it out? And so I think when I came down, Gwyneth had said that she, I, I said, oh, who recommended you? And she said Kate had recommended her. And funny Years, years and years later, I'd found out that she'd read the article in the magazine and she was like, I want the person that does her hair to do my hair. And so that's how they got it. But um, yeah, and then it just, it's like a snowball effect, you know, because I suppose I was in London and a lot of the celebrities at the time lived in, in New York or LA. And when one person goes to someone and Gwyneth is, really given and really kind and sort of obviously with her goop that's her skill is giving out information so she as soon as you know some you do someone's hair like Gwyneth as soon as anyone sort of steps foot in the UK like she'll be you'll be the first person that she's given your name you know so it, okay. it goes like that and it, yeah. and I then vice versa I was given names in America to clients that I was doing, sending over to them. And we we kind of had this like little community between the UK, New York and LA. And it, we just used to sort of go in a little triangle and that's how it kind of all sort of started off really, I suppose. Yeah. If, if someone asked me to describe you, one of the things I'd say is that you were a proper Essex girl. Mm. Um, now the problem is that American audiences listening to this will have no idea what I mean by that. And I'm not even sure how to describe what a proper Essex girl is as well. But part of your appeal to these people, to me, is, or or part of your success, is that you're not intimidated by anyone. Mm, No. How important is that in terms of those sort of relationships and bonding and gelling with those sort of people. The fact that you're so normal, you're so down to earth, you're not a diva prima donna, and you're not intimidated by anyone. So how does it, just talk about that for a bit. Well, I think um, my parents are really down to earth. You know, like, you know, my parents are very working class. Um, and so I think you get that from your background. Also, I feel like my dad's probably not impressed with much. So maybe I've got a touch of that. Um, working in the business from a very early age and being taught how to deal with people. I mean, we kind of like, I suppose, going from seen and not heard from your parents to to then being, you know, standing upright, not having much to say in front of a client unless you're spoken to as an assistant. And I, I suppose that kind of follows through and then working with a lot of celebrities like I did in the Barclay Hotel, but they were kind of really grown-up people like, you know, Kirk Douglas and his wife. And they, well, they, were, mm. they, were, they were actually they were really giving people and really, I think, 
when you're working with someone that's so young, so I was probably 15, they were so shocked that I was quite young and I was just ready to grow and just listen to what people had to say. And mainly I just wanted to get on and just wanted to be professional. And so I think that, I think it's, it's just um, most of everyone, they're all ordinary people, put it this way, you know, um, and you're normally in either the hotel room with them or they're in their, in their house, you know, you're in such close um, proximity with them that it, you can't really freak out and be weird and be like, all you know, starstruck and gobsmacked. It's, um, you know, we had those moments afterwards, you know, like I remember I was working on a film with Gwyneth Paltrow and we were doing this film called Proof, which I'm going to say was probably one of the most boring films um, to be on set because it was very, um, it was a very quiet set and I was pregnant at the time. And I remember Chris Martin brought Justin Timberlake down and I was literally five months pregnant doing cartwheels down the, down the aisle thinking, oh, my God, Justin Timberlake's coming to the set. How This is like the most exciting thing that's happened in weeks. But then when he came in, I was like, okay, hi. And, you, you know, it was just you, you just you're taught to hold those things in and act a certain way in front of clients. And I think I don't really treat my clients any differently from I see them as a client, basically, and I don't treat them any differently as if I would do meeting somebody new in the salon. You know, well, the first time I met Madonna, um, I had to go to her house, and I didn't know at the time that I was doing her colour for her wedding, but that that was a piece of information that they wasn't given to me. <laughs> when I came in and she, she, I sat in the hallway. I mean, she came down the stairs immediately, held her hand out, to shake my hand and introduce herself as Madonna. And I was like, well, what I really wanted to say was, well, of course I know who you are. You're freaking Madonna. <laughs> I was like, oh, hi, my name's Nicola Clark. And just shook her hand. Yeah. And then I think to myself at the end of the day, the result of her hair has to be amazing. Yeah. So my then my head goes into that mode. So I don't think about, oh my God, it's Madonna. And she's so famous. It's crazy. I just think, right, I've got to get this right. But what ab- amazing. What, what, what about when you have pushback moments? For example, um, someone like Madonna, she's not just a normal client, and if she starts talking about something oh, and, yeah. and you disagree, how yeah. do you, I mean, with a client, that's one yeah. scenario, but has there been any examples of that with someone like Madonna where you've got to stand yeah. out for, for I mean, what, you, what you know? Yeah, she's a feisty woman and she knows what she wants and she's, you know, that's why she's still around to this day. Yeah. She, um, so on that first time, she asked me, it's a really common thing in the US for women to have their color done and then have their eyebrows done in the salon. That wasn't at the time a really common thing for us in the UK. So after I'd colored her hair, she said to me, oh, you can color my eyebrows. And I was like, oh, I don't do eyebrows. And she was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I don't, I don't color eyebrows. I do hair on the head, not on the face. And she, she was like, well, my colorist in New York does my eyebrows. And I was like, well, she hasn't given me your formula, so I don't feel comfortable with doing that. And she's, and she, we kind of had this little back and forth of like, well, I'm not doing it. Well, you're going to do it. That was that, really. Okay. So, and, so, and so with examples like that, I mean, there's that fine line between being professional, being accommodating, 
but also standing up for what you feel comfortable doing. Well, I think with that, I would have, I wanted her to understand that it wasn't something that was my profession. And because she's so professional, I was there to do a particular job. If she wants me to do her eyebrows, then she needs to know that that is not my profession. And I will give it a go after she kind of talked me into it. But it's not something that I'm comfortable with doing as long as she knows the outcome is not going to be perfect. Okay. And we were fine with that. And And she likes to have a little bit of a ruckus as well. She's a feisty woman. We're both Leos. I mean, to tell you the truth, I think that's why I'm probably still around because we're both Leos. And, you know, I think she likes my feist... I think she, um, you know, I think she likes having me around just in general. Yeah, she respects that you, you, yeah. you, you're not intimidated and that you do push back. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, what, what's your favourite area to work in? I mean, aside from the salon, I mean, you know, you do, you do film work, you do fashion work, you do, you know, high-profile musicians, et cetera. Is yeah. it, do, do you have a favourite area? Yeah, I love doing red carpet. Red carpet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. it's funny because it wasn't even a thing before, but it's been over the last sort of five years, it's become such a thing. And I, the funny thing is, is with, um, with most of my celebrity clients, I started coloring their hair. And when they found out that I could style hair, cause I didn't really sort of push it on them. They then were booking me to do, um, like you know, I used to blow dry. Most of the hairdressers in um, that would do home visits tend to just do the color, and then they'd have a stylist come with them. But I just used to go do the color, and then I'd blow dry. And some of the clients that had trickier hair to blow dry because I could blow dry were then booking me to do jobs. So, say for instance, Gwyneth liked the way that I blow dried her hair, so she then asked me to do a film with her, um, which I was fairly uncomfortable with doing in the beginning because I didn't really know how it worked and the continuity and the concept of all those things. So those things, then people all talk and everyone's, they're all friends. So they like, oh, I did a film with Nicola and they're like, what do you mean? She, she styles hair. And then it becomes a thing. And then I went on an album tour with Madonna and styled her hair for that. She asked me to do a film, which I couldn't do at the time because I had another, um, another job at the same time. So and it just, um, I think people just want people that they like working with and and you work as a team, especially on films. You work in this little team where you come up with, um, obviously you work with the director and the actress or the actor that you're working with and you sit and you discuss hair colour and styling and it all goes from there really. So, I, but I love, I loved the, um, the film work that I did, but the red carpet work is, you know, it's glamorous. It's glamour. It's getting someone ready for a really big event that a lot of people are going to see, and it's at their. You know, they're looking at their best. So it's it's a fantastic thing to do. Plus, as well, you get to go to amazing destinations. I mean, most of the time we spend most of the time in in a hotel, but I'm lucky to work with really amazing people that I don't mind actually spending a bit of time either on my phone or talking to them about stuff that we're up to. And yeah. Yeah. I, I was scrolling through your Instagram feed before um, I got on the phone to you today, and uh, there was one thing that really stood out, and it was you getting on a helicopter with Madonna. Oh. Um, was that a, like a, a real pinch yourself moment? 
Well, that that is that wasn't me getting on a helicopter. That was oh. her getting on a helicopter. Right. Okay. But, but, I, but I we clean up. We, were we did. It. Yeah, we did. We did. I have had a helicopter moment with Madonna, and we um, we did go from the, my helicopter moment with Madonna was even more bizarre than that one that you saw on um, on my Instagram because we were going somewhere in Kent from from London, and we flew from Battersea. London on on the way back she was still on the helipad and I'd gone into I don't know what you call it into the room where you sit and wait like the lounge Mm. and I walked in and as I walked in it was the same time as the Isle of Wight festival was happening and in walked Beyonce, Jay-Z, Kanye West, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow and Gwyneth was like oh my god what are you doing here I was like well I'm with your friend Madonna so that was like yeah it is that was definitely a pinch myself moment for sure and also as well going when you're flying and you go straight up rather than take off like we all know so well yeah it's a really bizarre it's a really bizarre experience yeah Okay. All right. Um, let's, well, thank you for sharing those stories and that, that little bit of insight. Cause I think a lot of young hairdressers in particular, well, people in particular, people love the idea of, uh, of celebrity and what goes on, what goes on behind the yeah. curtain, so to speak. So thank you for, for, you know, for sharing that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the salon, uh, side of what you're doing now because that there is now a salon called Nicola Clark at John Frieda. Um, mm. and you know, I know that you love working in the salon. In fact, yeah. I, I read that you describe it as the best part of the job. So, yeah. uh, tell us about the London salon and how that came about and, um, and what's happening there. Mm. So I've been working for John Frieda for about 17 to 18 years and really, loved working in both salons that John had in the UK. So we had one salon in Cavendish Street and one salon in Orpah Street in Mayfair, so um, central London. And I spent my time between the two when I wasn't off doing a film or a photo shoot or red carpet. And I just love working in the salon. I love the um, I love working with the team. Um, the most amazing colour team at John Frieda we all discuss clients, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. It's really kind of like a bit of a community and how we work out what we're going to do to people and how we're going to do it. It's it's kind of just a fantastic place to work. And John had been talking to me for years about maybe opening a salon. And I was so busy with either having children, I mean, I've only got two, but having kids, having a husband, working backwards and forwards between the US and Europe. So I just didn't really find, I just felt that I didn't really think I'd have much time in my life to do that. And also as well, working in a salon, knowing how demanding clients are and staff, to be honest, I just didn't think I would be able to um, give it my everything. Um, So I was just a bit dubious in, in the beginning but I knew it was something that I wasn't going to rule out. And I feel when I was in my teens, I had real direction in that my most important thing in hairdressing was to be respected by my peers. 
And that was one of the biggest things for me. And, you know, I would watch like people like Eugene Solomon and Sam McKnight and Guido and all these other hairdressers. And I just wanted them to know about me and to respect me and hope that I would be in their radar. And I felt like I'd kind of achieved that somewhat in my career. And my husband was like, well, now what are you going to do? And so I just thought this is something that's going to be like a huge step for me because I want to be able to put a lot into it and do it properly. And so it took me a, a quite a while to decide that I was actually going to do it. I um, it was a big. It was probably one of the scariest things that I feel like I've done. I've done. I've put myself in scary, scary situations like being in the room with Madonna and being in charge of a film and doing all those things that had a lot of responsibility um, and you wanted to do the best for people. But this was like people's lives and careers that you were going to be taking responsibility for. So it was a quite a big step for me. And it was, it was like, it's like, like I think someone had said, it's like throwing yourself out of an aeroplane. It's actually, it's the throwing yourself out of the aeroplane and making that decision that you're going to do it was the, was the hardest thing. And then the free falling is like, the actual joy of it and I must admit it's probably one of the most rewarding things I've done so far and I do love it there's challenges and it's definitely hard um and I thought that I worked quite hard before and now it it takes it to a whole new level yeah you know and and I think in the beginning when I first did it I really um I didn't make myself ill, but I was going that way of making myself ill because I thought I felt that if I wasn't thinking about it day and night, that it, I wasn't doing my job properly and I wasn't working to my full capacity. So I was actually starting to think I'm going to actually make myself sick. And so I'm understanding myself and learning to teach myself how to give things to other people to do because I feel like where I've been on my own little path in my own little career, even though I worked within a salon, I guided my own career. I never really sort of took, I took advice from other people, but no one of my bosses ever told me that I should do this to further myself. I did all the things I did because I wanted to do them. Yeah. So yeah. It, the hardest thing for me was to actually think, to understand that I can't do everything and that you have to have a great team in place to do those things to make a salon work. Yeah. Do you, do you, visit, do you personally manage the salon? No. So I have um, a fantastic manager and assistant manager as well. They're both great. And um, I have, funny enough, I contacted when I decided that I wanted to do this with John, I said, I wanted to, well, if I take over this salon that we chose the space and we chose, I went across I went to all my friends' salons in the UK and um, in the US. I went to Tracy Cunningham and I went to Serge Lamont in, in the US. And I looked at um, how their salons worked and what their salon layout was and what, what you know, where they kept their bags and how their workstations were. And, you know, just sat, sat in, I, I kind of like shadowed my friend Tracy Cunningham who uh, works at a salon in uh, LA, Los Angeles, called Mesh. 
and she was a great help. My friend Renya in um, in Australia in Sydney owns a fantastic salon called Valance, and they both, quite frankly, were super supportive and gave me loads of ideas and helped me out with, you know. And also, I've got a really great friend who owns um, Leanne Citron, who owns Andy Lecomte with Andy, and. I had such great support. And so I sort of figured out what kind of salon I wanted and went to John and gave him my ideas and he sat in the meetings and basically just let me get on with it. And, um, yeah, I've just had great support. I mean, the guy that I worked for in Essex when I was 13, he, um, Simon Harris, has um, a, a management company and he helped me with the running of the salon and um, how you know what I should be um, charging and how my structure should work within the salon how we structure the color how we structure the styling what their commission should be so it's kind of gone full circle I'm really lucky all the people near enough all the people that I've had in my life have all come back into my life some way or another and um, I think it was just about building great relationships and mm. And respecting each other and you know I've, I've been really lucky yeah so someone else is, like it's your name on the door you're in partnership mm. with john yeah. um but and you work in there most, yeah, yeah. most of the week you're in there yeah. behind the chair doing clients i'm in there i'm in there four days a week yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm in there unless i get called out to do whatever you know whatever we get called out to do photo shoot or a film or anything i mean i've slowed down on films but yeah, I mean, everything we do together. So we have um, a managed meeting once a month. We have a board meeting. We have salon meetings. Um, yeah, I'm sitting on all the appraisals. Yeah, we run it. We run it together as a team. Good. Fantastic. Well, that sounds very exciting. Mm. Okay. Well, is, is there anything you wish you'd known before you opened a business? I think I was quite involved in um, a lot of the creative side of the business already. So I got to see some of the runnings of a business. I just think maybe, which I learned quite quickly, was just just imagine that you just can't do everything yourself. I just mm. and ask for help. That was one thing that maybe I kind of known in the beginning is that it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. Other than that, I feel like I pretty much knew, I mean, I don't know anything by any means. And, you know, there's some great hairdressing businesses out there. I, you know, amazing. But I just think I wish I'd have known that it's okay to ask for help in the beginning. But I know that now and I'm not really that far into, still quite a fledgling business. It's still quite a new business. When I've been really, I've only really taken over since the last three years. So. Yeah. But there is a group of, I'm not sure how many John Frieda salons. Uh, is there half a dozen salons? Yeah, there's two in New York and then there's um, two in London. Well, we've got the two in London and then we have one in Ibiza as well. Right. So it wasn't just a, um, you know, a cut and paste of this is how you run a John Frieda salon. No, no. It's, so you, you run yeah. it completely independently of, yeah. there's not like a sort of a franchise prototype of this is how no. you run the business. No, John's, that, I think the one, well, the many great things of John is that he isn't intimidated by somebody, somebody else's creativity and 
he's I feel like he's always learning about something. You know, he's the most giving person and he will say to me, you know, I'm not really involved, but if you need me to be involved, I'll be involved. You know, like he's, um, he said to me, that when, when he came into the salon after it had been running for probably about six months, he was like, you know what, this is actually like one of the best things I, that I've ever done that I've not been involved in. So he's just fantastic. Like if I call him, he's always at the end of the phone. Mm. Um, he doesn't interfere if that's the way that you want to call it. Um, I mean, he has his ideas and stuff and he's great with advice. But overall, he just lets me get on with it. Yeah. And Serge runs his salon the way that he runs his salon. We, we speak over Messenger very rarely. You know, if he's got a client coming into the UK or vice versa, you know, we've obviously been in contact recently um, just with the way things are going. But overall, we all run our salons and John is there, I suppose, as, as, a, as, a, as a mentor and a, as a guidance, really. Mm. Okay. So I know that last year you were awarded Best London Salon by Marie Claire magazine. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how important are um, awards and competitions and stuff? Are they important to you as a brand? Um, well, to tell the truth, I've never really been that heavily involved in the industry, um, in the hair industry. I'm lucky that, you know, Hairdresser Journal and Creative Head and all those kind of um, magazines and Schwarzkopf that hold. Uh, competitions have asked me to judge and I've judged I've been one of the judges for many years in both of the, um, the kind of big awards that we have over here um, in the awards that I've been I've been kind of nominated so I've not really entered um, the Mary Claire one we did um, and I think it. I just felt like I never really felt, felt like I needed it for myself and I wasn't particularly interested in winning awards myself. Um, but I think it's good for the team morale and it's good for clients. It's, it, I found that the uh, Marie Claire Award was actually, I think it made the clients feel very proud because they've been part of the salon for so many years and I feel like they feel that they're part of the team. So I think they felt like they'd won it themselves as well. I think it was really great for the team. It's something great for people to talk about with their clients. Um, and you I think we definitely saw a boost in um, people booking in for sure. So I think they do. They are important. Um, and I think it's important for the team as well because it takes a lot to enter those competitions. And I think it to keep your brain moving and you know keeping creative and adding in adding all those um awards things i think it's i think it's good yeah i think it's good for the team mm. okay um what, what would you say your biggest strength was oh well i don't know what is my biggest strength what, what, what would other people say it was i suppose i'm quite i'm loyal i don't know whether that makes a difference i'm really loyal oh, uh, sure it does yeah my biggest strength. Oh, I'm a workaholic. 
So I don't that, really that say no be, to a lot yeah. of things. That probably yeah. helps yeah. a lot of people. And I, I, I'm sort of thinking back to, you know, at the beginning of this interview when you were talking about just little things, like you said, you know, uh, I would make sure my school, my, my holidays were booked when yeah. London Fashion Week was on so that I was free to work on London Fashion Week. And, uh, you know, there, there were, there's lots of things about your story at the beginning, which is sort of like light bulb moments for young people that are listening to this, because I suppose that was one of the things I was going to ask you, uh, you know, as we start to wrap up, is, is, is what advice would you give to some young, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old, whether they're in the US, the UK, Australia, or anywhere in between, you know, who look at your life and look at the client base you serve and the type of work that you do and go, I want to be that person. What is the bit of advice you want them to walk away with uh, after listening to this podcast? Well, I think the thing is, is that I, my, I find that with hairdressing, it's not really, I don't see hairdressing as a job. I see it as my life and my career. And I'm lucky that I go into work and every day can be different. Um, and the whole point, and luckily for me, I didn't want to work in an office and I didn't want to be sat in front of a computer screen. And I just think that if you work hard, and you have determination and you don't listen to the knockbacks, then you can probably achieve anything. Um, someone was saying to me that they think maybe it's harder now because of Instagram. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I feel like I would still stick to the same theory that I did when I was sort of 15, 16. If you want to work with someone, if you want something, you just have to go for it and be kind, determined, hardworking, and respectful. You know, I think you can achieve pretty much most things. And I think that's the main thing is you have to be determined, hardworking, and you definitely have to be respectful because, you know, the people that are teaching you have probably seen it, been there, done it. So don't... Also, I think well, one thing is I did go to a salon when I was leaving, when I left, when I was about to leave um, Andrew Joe's, I went to a company and they said to me, well, you know, you've got all these different skills, but here we just do one thing. So you either do styling or you do cutting and that's, you know, how we work. And it was a really great company and I thought, you know, if they were really cool and I just thought, you know, that well, that would be the next move. And I just thought, you know what, actually, I've got these skills and I know how to style hair and I know how to, to colour hair. I don't want to style hair in the salon. I want to do that out of the salon. I understand that we work in the West End and that's how things are, but I'm, that's not going to work for me, so I'm not going to go there. And that's fine. So I just think you listen to what you want to do in your heart and we're lucky in this industry that we can navigate through all these different companies and you will find somewhere that will embrace you and let you be the person that you want to be. Don't listen to anybody that says you can't do it because you can do it a hundred percent. You just have to be dedicated. I missed funerals, weddings, parties, 
all different things. And there are some of the sacrifices I made. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm not saying you have to make those sacrifices, but, you know, you know, I've been on holiday before and Madonna's pulled me back off on holiday to come and have her hair done. It's just whether you want to be there and do that, because I can tell you now, someone will be there behind you wanting to do that job. Mm. Okay. I think that that is a, <laughs> a good place to start wrapping up. Uh, great, you know, final bit of advice. Um, I don't think I've ever done a podcast and talked as little as I have on this one um, because you've got so much to say and um, I know I consciously uh, are, are glad that I've not talked much. I really just, just want to, you know, listen to your story and, and, um, and hear the you know, the, the, the humility with which you talk about your journey. And, you know, you wrapped up then with the things that you think are important, you know, about kindness and respect. And, and, and they're, they're almost old-fashioned things, but they are the things that are needed to turn yourself into being, you know, what so many people aspire to be. So thank you so much, Nicola, for, for sharing your story with us. Um, if uh, before we do just wrap up here, um, if if you are listening to this podcast with Nicola Clark and you've enjoyed it, then please do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories and don't forget to tag us in it. Uh, Nicola, on that uh, note, in terms of um, social media, how can people connect with you? What's your Instagram handle? Um, it's Nicola Clark Color. And that's color spelt the UK way, C-O-L-O-U-R. Okay, yes. so if anyone wants to see the, the fabulous life that uh, Nicola Clark is, is, uh, is living, um, you know, through being an amazing hairdresser, hair colorist, and an amazing human being, um, then follow her on Instagram at Nicola Clark Color. Uh, Nicola, I want to say thank you so much for giving up your, uh, your time to share your story with uh, uh, the audience at Grow My Salon Business today. I have thoroughly enjoyed um, listening to it, and I know it's taken a while for us to get together and do this. So uh, thank you once again. It's been great having you on the show. No, it's always great talking to you, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.